Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm going to get straight to the task of introducing my guest today because her career has been myriad and varied. Kua Jianfi has over 20 years of experience in the entertainment industry with a career spanning fashion, film, television, theatre, print and online media. Starting out behind the scenes, Akua carved out a reputable career as a hairstylist on London's Portobello Road, her hairdressing reputation leading to her first foray into the entertainment world with a hair CV which includes work for magazines such as Vogue, Disorder, Bowls and ID. Since 2010, she's been part of the Paul Hanlon hair team during both London and Paris Fashion Weeks for Matthew Williamson, Topshop Unique, Jonathan Saunders, Giles and more. She's also done editorial campaigns for Aquascutum, Yiger, Hugo Boss and Uniqlo. She's also worked on various music videos and British gangster film Rolling with the Nines. After leaving a full-time career in hairstyling, Akua studied journalism at London College of Communications, formerly London College of Printing, and her career as a freelance journalist took off. Akua worked at renowned underground music digital TV station Channel AKA, formerly known as Channel U. Then she moved to the BBC, where she worked at their Performing Arts Fund, BBC Writers' Room, and then BBC R&D. In 2010, Akua worked with director Mark One to co-write and produce anti-knife and gun crime short film After Effects. During this time, Akua gained valuable insight into the machinations of script writing and turned those skills into becoming a script consultant for new screenwriters and playwrights. In 2012, Akua launched multi-award winning platform The British Blacklist, a media outlet for BAME entertainment professionals. The British Blacklist is a media brand respected throughout the industry for its dedication to news of British black professionals in screen, stage, sound and literature and its database documenting and championing their achievements in a way that hasn't been done before. Akua is also a sought-after commentator, regularly speaking on news outlets. She's on the board of the New Black Film Collective and is a regular collaborator with We Are Parable on events organisation, who notably created an audience with Spike Lee in 2017. Akua is also a regular chair for screenings and panel discussions hosted by BAFTA, We Are Parable and the BFI. So there was a lot to talk about. We also cover what success means to Akua, if there's anything she would do differently, what it actually means to be a founder, and what keeps her creatively energised. I really appreciated Akua's transparency and straightforwardness, and I think there are definitely some wisdoms to be gleaned. So here is that interview. This is episode 98 of Best Girl Grip. So I tend to start off in the realm of higher education because I do think that's where we get a first sense of what we want to do, um, you know, when we grow up. So I'm wondering if you went to university um, and what you studied there, if you did go. I did go to university. Um, it was a long journey to the university because I definitely did not know what I wanted to do when I left school. And the only thing, like, I think I left school with, a, I don't know how many GCSEs at the time, but I definitely had art and English and possibly RE. English was my top lesson and and, and art was my top. So I think I've got A's and B's in both of those and maybe a C and RE and the rest was just out of the water. Like, forget about it. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I left school, we did the whole lemming sheep thing and then we followed a friend to Hammersmith and West London College because she said there's loads of boys there. And upon visiting her, she was right. And so my very naive South London mind was like, oh, I'm going to West London to see all the boys in college, which didn't last long because um, I did a kind of random art course and maths retake didn't last long spent most of the time in the common room got kicked out and so my mum was like you are not staying on your ass at home and she kind of forced me to go and work with my auntie who had a home salon in white city so I did that and that was really good training ground because I was always interested in hair 
never thought about being a hairdresser. But I always thought I'm really good at it. I can do it naturally. I used to do it just for my friends. And I was really mm. good at it. So I did that. Then thought, okay, I better go back to college. And then copied another friend and did a performing arts course for no reason whatsoever. Had no aspirations of doing being an actress. But I just did the performing arts course because she said it was fun. Was quite good. I passed that. I actually had um, someone say, you'd be really good as a newsreader. You've got something. But I didn't take that on board. Went Just went back into hairdressing, worked at a hair salon for a while, and then got into doing like fashion shows and stuff like that because someone kind of headhunted me and thought, okay, you're good at what you're doing. Come and join my team. So I did some of that. And then I had aspirations of being like a global international celebrity hairdresser, which which wasn't too far-fetched, to be honest, though it sounds very dramatic right now. But then I had a child and then I thought, okay, so I can't do that. So what I will do is go back to college. And um, I, in picking a course, I thought I love media and I'm good at English. So that was the easiest thing to do. So that's what I went. I had no rhyme or reason. I just thought, let's just do something I won't fail at. Ended up doing back at Hammersmith College because that's what I knew. And then part of that course requirement was you had to apply for uni. So I'd never considered going to uni. It was a course requirement. So I was like, okay, natural progression from media would be journalism. So I signed up to go to London College of Communication, or I applied and I got in. And that's why I did my journalism degree. And that's the end of my very long story. (laughs) I mean, it's an incredible story. And the thing that struck me, I kind of want to go back to the hairstyling because it's really interesting in that you kind of were working in a salon, but you say you were headhunted. But I'm wondering, you know, if there was ambition as well that, you know, there was a factor in that and that you you wanted to go kind of beyond and and start traveling the world and, and do all these kind of amazing things with hairstyling. I think so, because I think I, I need to, I wish I, I might have to look back. I, I used to keep a diary, so I might have to read and see what I what I was thinking back in the day. Because <laughs> I don't remember having like, I don't know what type of person I was back then, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, when I was working at the salon. Because I know that I was working at a salon. I, I think it, subconsciously I knew it wasn't enough. So I think like, I always had my mind set on doing something more. But I was ne- it was never like I, I've got this dream to be this, that and the other. Anyway, so I was very good at doing hair. And I say that not to be arrogant, but I was really good at doing hair. It came very naturally to me. I think I did a maybe a year's course in hairdressing or I worked at like where like you learned and were trained at the same time. And I didn't really last very long at that because I could just literally just do hair. I was really good at it. And someone, because the hairdresser was in Labrick Grove, a lot of kind of artsy people came in and people in the industry came in and kind of like fashion film and all that type of stuff. So I remember, I don't know which came first. I know there's an art, a music artist called Jeremy Healy this white guy, he used to do dance music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he had long curly hair and he used to come in and get his hair braided. So that was my, and then he, he I, so I would braid his hair. And then from that, he'd like, look, can you come and I think I did his hair for Top of the Pops. And I think I did his hair for one of his music videos. And so that was kind of like me looking at, oh, I could do this as a, so I could be a personal hairstylist to people and get paid. And then somewhere along that line, someone came into the sun and was like, you're really good, heard about you. I'm doing a fashion show in Paris. Come and be my assistant. And it was like, it's a crazy, ridiculous night. And no, my, I remember my friend and I were asked. My friend came, we had like a consultation meeting with a guy and she was like, this is pants money. So I'm not doing it. And I was like, this sounds great. I'm doing it. <laughs> and I remember doing, it was an overnight in Paris and just did the fashion show. It was for Castel Bajac. I don't know if that designer is still, still around. And I just remember loving it, loving having all the models go through my hands. And I think I went into real good assistant mode. So the guy was like, you're really good. Be my assistant. So then I think I think I did a few shoots and stuff with him. Yeah. So that's that was my foray into doing that type of stuff. And so I, I think naturally I was like, it has to be big. I can't just do being a salon. 
I'd have to do more. And because the opportunity came to me, I was like, yeah, this is definitely the route that I want to take. I want to be out there doing shoots and celebrity hairstyling and all that type of stuff and making loads of money for it. Because I, me- I remember doing a shoot at Sting's house randomly with Piers Brosnan and Je- I think Jodie Kidd's sister. It was just random experiences. And I was like, yeah, this is a bit of life I'd like. That's really interesting. And I'm wondering, is that the mentality that you still have when you apply kind of, I mean, you found your own business now. So, it, I mean, that is big, but is your mentality still, it has to be big? Yeah, I think I'm a bit of a big dreamer. And I think um, the other day someone called me a perfectionist and I was really proud. <laughs> Some people find that it's probably the most annoying trait to have when you're dealing with a perfectionist. And I and I feel like it's a little, I think people kind of say, oh, I'm a perfectionist and they're not really but I realised that I really want things to be perfect and really, really good and really, really epic, especially for because I represent a community of people that don't have epicness and or have been denied epicness and greatness and bigness and perfection and professionalism and all the things that are afforded my community of people that are negative. I kind of think I've pushed against that. I push against that. So I want my platform to be big, shiny and perfect. I want everything I do to serve the community that I'm serving in the best possible way. Mm, That's a really beautiful sentiment. Considering that you graduated from the London um, College of Communications and again, you're sort of, you've circled the the media industry. What do you consider to be like your official entry point? You know, your official, your first official kind of job in, in film, TV, media. Gosh, you're making me dig into the old, the old archives. Well, maybe not film and TV, but I suppose that foray into doing hair on a runway, that's behind the scenes, that's crew. Mm-hmm. I would have known that, that that terminology back then, that I was crew and working on set as it were. So, and I know I'd done a, so fashion would have been my first foray into media in that respect. And then after having my daughter, then it would have been going into doing, like I started doing music videos. I think I did hair for Miss Dynamite, definitely. For, and then I did um, Shiesty and... There was a music video and then a friend of mine did a film called Rolling with the Nines, a real indie gangster, British gangster film. And I did the hair on that. I assisted doing it. I'd actually, I just, yeah, he asked me to just come down and help with the extras. So I did. So I remember doing that. And then... Um, was that your like, first like insight into the film industry? Do you, re- do you remember having like a bit of an aha moment or like feeling no. like that called out to you? No, I just, uh, it's weird because I, I think... My route into the film industry might have been actually blogging. It's all a mix. So every, I, I haven't got my years straight and my timeline straight, but I know that I think into the actual film industry might have been blogging for a platform called UK's Magazine, but I'm writing about film there. And I think I wrote a few articles for some people and I can't remember who they were or what platforms. This is when blogs were really bloggy, way before the boom of it now. And also I think after doing my course, I definitely had work experience at I had work experience at my fashion magazine, and yeah, and then I worked at Channel U, a music station. Then I worked at the BBC, and alongside that, I was doing parallel projects like doing hair and music videos and rolling with the line. So I can't I can't think about the timeline, mm-hmm. but I don't know where my aha moment was because I just felt like I was just doing it. How did you wind up at BBC Writers Room? So that was a, what the BBC is really great at is keeping staff in their <laughs> clutches. So my first. Like I said, my first job out of uni was working at Channel U and that was on the back of doing work experience there. And they were like, look, you're good. Let's hire you. So I worked there for a bit. And then after leaving there, a friend of mine said, look, BBC Performing Arts Fund is looking for someone. So I went went to the Performing Arts Fund, got that role. And it was just a matter of that, my my role there winding up and then applying 
for BBC Writers Room and getting it. And that was it. I think in my mind, I started to think about script writing. I can't remember the years that was, but it was, I was thinking about script writing. I was thinking about, I'm a writer. I know I'm a journalist. I know I like writing. So writing was always in my thing. I think when I was a child, I wanted to be an author. So I think somewhere in that, I was picking up writing and working at BBC Writers Room would be the great place to be mm. and start looking at how I could explore my, myself being a writer and um, whilst assisting Kate Rowland as, um, as her PA at the BBC Writers Room. And I know you were also working as a script consultant around that time or after that time. I'd love to dig in a little bit into kind of what that entails, just because I think it's obviously different from script editing. Is that something you still do as well? Um, I'd love to. I don't have the time. But yeah. it, so basically a friend of mine, Julius Amadume, who's now, it's, it's, it's wonderful, his journey. And it's a, his journey is also a testament to how bloody hard it is. But around that time, I think we went to school together, actually. And that's high school, secondary school for you guys. But it was high school at the time. But he one day was like, can you read this? Because he's, I think he, he just asked me to read something. And that started a beautiful journey of me editing. And I suppose I was editing and consulting and back and forth thing with mm. him. So he had dyslexia and so he was like, spell check this for me. And then we just got into this groove of me editing and consulting and discussing his scripts. And I did that for him. And I think I did it for one or two other people as well. Um, and that was just it. it it's, I think it's just, it's something that's naturally in me. Definitely stuff around literature, media, stuff like that. Writing was always my thing. I just never, I never really had a word for it or knew how it would manifest. It appears to me like you've had a real blend of careers. And I'm wondering if you've ever felt like that was a disadvantage or you've always felt that it was a strength because you can dip your toe in so many different sectors. I think, um, you know, they would say master of... Jack, jack of, of all, all trades, yeah. Jack of all trades, master of none. I've been a jack of all trades, but I've also been a, a master of a few. And I think my attitude has been... And I, I think I got it from listening to my mum, who's a West African immigrant to this country, who took the role that her dad said she should take, which has served her well in pension years as a midwife. But she always had aspirations of being a chef or being a bit more creative. So I have always heard that story of she didn't do what she wanted to do. So I've always like, I've got, I've, it's been built in me that I, I'm always going to do what I want to do. And I want to be a script writer and I want to be a hairdresser and I want to be a producer and I want to be an editor and I want to do whatever the hell I want to do. So I think that's the thing where playing to my strengths of writing English media, do, playing to my strengths of being able to do hair, playing to my sense of being a great researcher and a great right-hand person, a great assistant. I've just dipped my toe and taken chances and roles and opportunities wherever my skill set permits. Mm. I haven't tried to be a rocket scientist because that's not me. And as I said, I failed maths, so definitely haven't tried anything to do with maths. But anything to do with anything that I think I'm good at, I will try I mean, I'm less, I'm more restricted now, but at the time when I was trying to find my feet and figure it all out, it hasn't been a hindrance because I was like, well, I'm good at this. I know I'm good at this or I could be good at this. So I'm going to take whatever opportunity serves that good side of me. Um, and speaking of job titles, you're now a founder of the British Blacklist, which um, you founded in 2012. For those that don't know, can you kind of give the top line of what TBB is and where did that idea come from? You know, what was it that fueled the creation of that company? So Bridge Blacklist is a media platform. It started off as a database. It still is a database, but that was the heart of it. And my idea, um, so that's what it is. It's a database and editorial platform that showcases the talents of Black creators from the UK, based in the UK and the wider diaspora who work across screen, stage, literature and sound. The idea... I was at, I can't, where was I? I was at BBC. I was in my last department at BBC, which was uh, R&D, research and development. And I was in a, 
a small team of who did multimedia research. And in that space, I felt like being at the BBC is all well and good. I definitely learned a lot, but I realized I had one foot out and I was always looking outward to what my community was doing. And I say my community of creatives, black creatives. And I knew there was this world of stuff that wasn't being represented on BBC. I knew there was more that I wanted to get into and what I wanted to do. I just didn't know what it was. I just knew there's a buzz of something else. So I always, like I said, I think I said I was blogging for a platform called UK's Magazine. I was trying to write. I was doing all these other extra things. And then I just had the idea that, and I think actually growing up, there's an American magazine called The Source Magazine, which is a hip hop magazine. And its thing was politics, lifestyle, culture and hip hop. And that was me all over. And I think I always had aspirations of doing a UK version of it somehow. So that was definitely my psyche and my consumption of media. After having a thought about doing this, that and the other, it whittled down to I needed to create a platform that showcases what black creatives are doing in the UK. And my inspiration was IMDb. And so I pulled together all the people that I could think of or could find and to put them in a database. And then around that, utilising my journalism degree, I said, well, what? It's going to keep people coming back to this database as I build the brand is some good old news reviews and interviews. And that's where the editorial bit around it, the database came from. And that's pretty much why I did it, just to showcase and start talking about what, what the mainstream platforms weren't talking about, which has changed a lot now. And how has your ambition for the company evolved? Like, what is it you kind of wanted it to do, you know, when you first started it and now a decade on, you know, is that still the guiding principle or has that changed? No, it hasn't changed. It's, 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 it's taken a lot, lot longer to visualize, to create the world that I want. I'm still not there yet, but mm. it's definitely not changed. And the whole thing is showcasing the talents of British black creatives and wider diaspora. And that's what it does. Mm. And that's what it has done. The only thing, and, and I can't even say I want to go bigger because I've always wanted, I knew what I wanted. I want the database to rival IMDb. Why not? And I want the editorial to rival Deadline, Variety, Shadow and Act, all the other platforms that talk about the industry in a way that people actually depend on what that those platforms are saying and those publications mm-hmm. are saying for their industry and information. I want the British Blacklist to be the one of those platforms that serve black creatives on that level. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm aspiring to do. I'm not there yet, but that's where it's going and that's where I want it to go. You said it took a lot longer. Was that internal reasons, external reasons? Like you felt like the industry wasn't ready? You know, what was the reason behind that? Money. <laughs> it's always financial resources. I, I, I mean, there's an element of understanding because I'm a creative first and not a businesswoman I wasn't a businesswoman, I'm a businesswoman now. There's lots of stuff I don't know and didn't definitely didn't know back then. So I think when you launch your own business and it, and your business becomes your baby, you put your personality into it. So my personality is a great right-hand person, but being the person in the driving seat, that's not necessarily, that wasn't my strength at the time. So I'm used to taking, I'm really good at taking orders and direction, especially if I'm good at what I'm doing. So like I said, I've been a brilliant right-hand assistant doing hair and and leading on hair and stuff like that that's fine I don't know it's when I know what I'm doing I'm brilliant but when I don't I'm a bit like I'm very cautious Mm. I'm very slow and so it's taken me and my personality a long time to get this where it needs to go and I I also think I've kind of blocked myself potentially because um, I noticed a lot of businesses around me it's the 10-year mark that they hit their stride and I've been saying that's maybe my comfort or my get out clause in 10 years in 10 years will be good and it's like it's interesting that on the ninth year a lot of a lot has happened next year is our 10th year and I feel like 10th years where a lot of big things will happen mm. and it will finally turn the corner that I want it to so I might have actually spoken into existence a 10-year journey where it might have worked if I'd said oh we'll take five years or two years <laughs> yeah that's true and on the topic of money I'm wondering you know at what point did it become your sole focus you know how long were you doing other jobs around it to kind of facilitate your being able to work on the British backlist 
2018, I think. I took redundancy from my last apartment at BBC, maybe 2016 or 2017, because mm-hmm. I then I was a year of, oh my God, living off the redundancy money and then having to take another role at BBC where I was a radio producer because I couldn't sustain. And, and then after lockdown and pandemic and then the department kind of culled everybody, kind of. And I also kind of needed to walk away because I, the whole reason of leaving the BBC was to focus on the date on, on the British blacklist and then getting slowly sucked back into working full time because I was chasing the money because I needed it. So then lockdown forced my hand, as it were. So now this is my sole thing, which is also freaky scary. But um, yeah. And I'd love to unpack the role of a founder because that's something that can mean, you know, so many different things in different contexts. So what does it mean to you and what are you doing as the founder of this organisation? As a founder, I'm doing everything um, and I'm doing everything because I don't have all the resources. I'd love to have a team where people are like, you do that, you do that, you do that. But as a founder, you're the creator. You're the life, heart and soul of the, of the of the thing that you created and brought to life. And that's literally it. I do everything. And that entails the admin side of things, emails, conversations, meetings, the editorial, content creator, social media person, podcast editor, producer, all the stuff on the business side of things, everything. I do have a wonderful assistant called Tamika. Like she's the best ever. And she's been an amazing right-hand person. And I have had a rotation of wonderful writers who've contributed and contributors who've done really well in upholding the editorial side of things. And there's so many people I've worked with, but the core of it is me and Tammy, to be fair, running the whole show. We touched on briefly like the the timeline for success. Um, I'm wondering if you had to start over, if you'd do anything differently. Yeah, definitely. I want I don't know what I'd do differently. Maybe had a little bit more business acumen, learned a bit more about business. I might have given myself a lot more time to do research. But sometimes I think that you can stall yourself out. I know I'm definitely a staller. Um I can talk myself out of doing things. So I don't know if I would change it because because I'm still not perfect now and I don't know if I'll ever change. But what I definitely recognize is that I need people who are good at what they do in the roles that I need them to be in so that I don't have to be everything and beat myself up for being a failure in certain things, which is not my fault, essentially, because I'm, I can't do everything as much as I'd love to be at one woman band. But maybe on a real practical level, having an understanding when to pause, stop, reflect and take time out to fix things, mm. to be a bit more business focused and ask myself why this is, if this isn't making money, is it necessary? And I think because I've, I've always been like, I've been doing this for the love of it all. But the reality is I want this to be a business that sustains and lasts. And in order to do that, I have to make business decisions, better kind of financial business decisions. This, I think the word is sweat equity. I think I got that from Cheryl Bedford. Sweat equity is that the labor that you put in, is it giving you money back? And but again, it's like, where would I be? All the blood, sweat and tears I put into this without much money. I've got really great, strong brand recognition right now. And people are collaborating with me in a way that wasn't happening before but I guess it's just really understanding where the money resides mm-hmm. and the knowing your business value and putting that first I think that's one thing when you don't understand your business value or your personal value or your brand value that's where you can make slight mistakes and not elevate yourself in a way that makes sense so mm-hmm. I think that's where I, I I think maybe that is learning that and that comes to your personality because I'm coming from a background of a bit of hard knocks so your personality, if you've got insecurities and stuff like that, that does come through when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, because those are the things that can hold you back. So possibly even maybe getting therapy at an earlier age, mm-hmm. like all those type of things that will help you be a person that faces the world in a different way, in a more positive way. Those are the things possibly I'd wish, maybe that is what I'd wish I'd change, go back and change. 
And some of those things you just mentioned, you know, brand value, brand recognition, turnover, they probably factor into this definition. But I'm wondering how you define success. You know, what does a good week, a good month, a good year look like for you? Success is everybody talking about the British blacklist and using it the way it's supposed to be used. That's success. Success is when I see someone and they're like, oh, my God, your platform's amazing. Oh, yeah, we use it. And not that it's amazing, not just the kind of puff celebration it's more the fact that someone's like I use your platform in the way it's I want it to be used if someone says I read an interview or I saw in your socials that this is coming out and now I'm going to go and watch it or I found this person and more importantly especially with the database I looked on your platform and I found this person and I've hired them to work that's success for me to be a resource for the industry and talent to be seen found and hired what keeps you creatively energized just all the stuff that's coming out. Like last night, I went to see King Richard. Mm. It's been the first time um, in a long time that I've watched a film from beginning to end and felt, oh my gosh, real joy. Because there's been a, quite a few biopics and kind of, you know, sport, you know, those kind of paid by numbers. This is the beginning story. And then they did this. And then there's the high, the low, the winds, the, mm. and then kind of like paid by numbers. This is the first time I've seen one of those type of films where you kind of even, even that you, we all know the story. It, I was still so deeply intrigued. And I think that's what it is. And it's films, it's, even though it's an American film, it's stuff like that. And just knowing what the creatives are doing on the ground and being around the creatives and, you know, how do they fall? A British black director co-writing and directing the how do they fall of an, a country in Western with a strong cast and a really strong <laughs> film, hugely inspiring. So that's what keeps me creatively going is that the fact that like people, anyone who thanks me for my work, I am always like, I wouldn't be working if you lot weren't working and weren't doing stuff that I could talk about. I literally live on the backs of people that are creating stuff. So if people stop creating, I don't exist. So it's the fact that people are persevering, especially in the UK, where it's been so difficult to get British black stories in the public mm. eye. I just love the, the tenacity of people. And that's what keeps me going. I'd also love to briefly touch on your role in the Soul Fest, which you co-founded alongside We Are Parable, the new black film collective and Soul Film. I'm wondering what inspired that collaboration and what role you play in the execution of the festival so era um Egeon, who in a long time friend he launched soul film and from the day he launched that this was basically a quarterly meetup at the bfi for black filmmakers british black filmmakers and he showcased a bunch of films and then they'd have a, like a networking session afterwards from day one that he launched that he's been on my back like look we've got to do something let's work together and it was like we were trying to find ways of how I could work with Soul Film. And so what we became like a media partner. So every time it happened, we shout about it on our platform and just, you know, try and get down there and review it and cover it and stuff like that. And then we just always would have, we'd have these ongoing conversations about what we could do. It was going to be a podcast. What could we do? What could we do? What could we do? And he started to flout the idea of a, of a film festival or something like that. And I think it, then it was because we talked so much about working together and he'd, he, like, he'd been so insistent that he wants to kind of collaborate with me on something that was a natural evolution and that was it. He was like, look, I'm ready to do it. We're going to do a film festival. I want you, I want so and so, New Black Film Collective, We Are Parable, come in together, let's do it. So we did. And my role, I mean, we wear many hats because, again, it's a small team of us, but I kind of think I sit safely in the talent, kind of presenting, hosting, Q&Aing. Actually, to be fair, we do everything because, like, for the past couple of years, my I've been overseeing the educational strand, so that's, like, where the Q&As have sat and what kind of training development perspective we can give on the on mm -hmm. the festival but also you know when it all comes down to it we all we meet regularly we all have a discussion about what needs to be done and then we kind of delegate tasks as it were um that's actually something I do want to ask you about because I know yeah you do a lot of um like panel moderation and Q&As and it's almost like the a nice upshot of of what you've been doing with the British Blacklist and whether that's you know 
but you find that particularly fulfilling and you know an unexpected joy of the job yeah because I think again I go back to when I was a little girl and always like religiously and when I say religiously I mean religiously watching Oprah Winfrey and actually I think now you're tapping into my memories I think I used to always say I want to be a presenter I think I used to always say that I'm, this, I'm actually remembering I used to say but I didn't believe it I don't think I, I think I used to say I wanted to be a, an author I definitely wanted to be an artist and paint portraits in Paris and an English teacher. And then I started saying I wanted to be a presenter, but I was never, ever going to make any means to do that. I just didn't know how to, had no clue how I'd do that. Loved Oprah from forever. She was my absolute hero. And I just, I think I've soaked her up. I definitely have, without knowing and without thinking I was in training or research and development, definitely interviews and reading interviews and things like that that's in my soul so I think I think I started doing well obviously we do interviews on the platform but then doing um hosting and sharing conversations I think it got to a point where I had run out of had no writers left or no one was really stepping up to say they wanted to do anything so I had to put myself in the line of fire and it wasn't intentional I just started doing junkets and stuff and then people would say oh you're good at this and then I'm okay and it's it's just me talking but now I can when I look back and now I whatever people see in me and why I do it and why they ask me to do it. That's definitely my stomping ground. My training was watching. I think I can attribute that to watching days and days of talk shows. And then coming back briefly to kind of soul, but then also the British blacklist. I mean, the crux of both of these initiatives is, is about platforming black creative talent, as you've said, it seems to me quite an intangible thing, you know, showcasing and visibility. How do you go about measuring that? You know, how do you say, you know, we're, we're affecting change here? I guess it's how how many people talk, like I said, how many people talk about the British Blacklist and how many people want to be associated with the British Blacklist brand. So literally before this conversation, someone called me and said, OK, I've got this thing coming out. Can we make sure that we're in every Monday we do a what to watch? And that person said, can you make sure that our show or our projects in what to watch? And I was like really happy in my head because like that means you're noticing what we're doing, you know, and you're placing importance on it. And so even the people that like, message me and say oh why didn't you do this and you didn't cover this and I did this and I wasn't invited here and I'm like okay so that means what I do matters the British blacklist matters to people so they see a level of importance on it so when organizations like BAFTA Netflix the Academy BBC get in touch with me and say we would love to put this on we'd love to work with you on this then I know that I've done my job has been done the fact that it's professional enough that these industries these organizations want to work with the British blacklist and then when the creatives are like either pissed off that I haven't mentioned them or are like, make sure you mention this or we want an interview or can you come down and cover this? And I know that they, they value, this is the, this is the, the thing that I wanted for it to be valuable to people. And then people feel like if we are visible on this platform, we are on the path to success or to visibility that we need for our projects to be successful. I'm wondering if mentorship has ever played a role in your career, either formal or informal. I think um, Karen Tippett was my first proper mentor. She gave me some really great advice back in the day. I've had people that give me really great advice all over the years. I'll say Mark Walters. He was someone that was really like a right-hand leaning shoulder during the early years of the British Blacklist, definitely. And then over the years, I was just having great conversations with people. I, I, I don't have like, a, I've never had a, like a proper, I have, I, I have had a mentor, Karen Tippett, but just really good conversations with really good people mm. over the years. What about peer support? That that you know, particularly with the collaborations that you're working on and partnerships, that seems to me like an equally important kind of part of sustaining your your joy for what you do. Yeah, I mean, like we are parable. 
I'll work with them to the end of my life. Like they're a brilliant team to work with, an organization to work with. We have great synergy, always on the same page. So, and watching their journey and evolution has been amazing as well. And I'm just like, I'll be, I'm riding on their coattails as much as they, I, w- I won't say they're riding on mine. That's very rude. But <laughs> I'll be riding on their coattails um, and I will do because they're just brilliant. And they've got such vision. There's, so, there's some key people that I've worked with. It's just been wonderful. And it's been really important that we can, collaborate and come together and what's really nice is the UK was has been built on isolation especially from people from marginalized groups there'd be one in one out type thing and it, mm. I think generations of that both love right now is that people are understanding the power of collaboration and seeing each other's lessons competition and working out how we can coexist um, another shout out is to Simone Pennant from TV Collective. She does something similar. TV Collective is similar to the British Blacklist in a different way, but she's just a, such a beautiful soul and she's really passionate about getting people work, hired and working and stuff like that. And she's just really good. So it's just been, it's great to have so many people in the industry that we're all working towards the same goal and all friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that sentiment. Yeah, of not seeing each other as competitors, but collaborators. Um, and you mentioned there that you'd received some great advice and I'm wondering um, if you can share some of it, if there's anything particular that stuck with you that you return to. I've had too many, too many <laughs> soundbites and nuggets and all the worlds of advice and all the people who have informed the person I am today. I think my main thing is authenticity, being true to who you are, being unapologetic and just being passionate about what you do is important. Being true to who you are, playing to your strengths, understanding when to take time out and take a pause and reflect has been very important. All my life experiences, all the people that have ever spoken to me and taken time out to help me and support me, it's just made me the woman I am today. Yeah, those are the tenants that you live by. Yeah. And, and finally, is there a film from a woman director? It can be an old, new film, short uh, feature, narrative or nonfiction that you'd like to recommend today. I'm going to say De- um, Gone Too Far by Destiny Agaraga and Bola Agbaje because they were one of the first to do it, like British black women getting a film in the cinema. One of the first, not discounting Amara Sante at all, because also the second person would be would, would have been her for Belle. But um, just because Destiny and Bola, Destiny's a director, Bola was the scriptwriter, is adapted from her play. They were of my, my peers and it was just really amazing to see this very authentic African story. British African story get to the screen so I'd recommend that gone too far amazing Akuya thank you so much for your time today it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and yeah I've really enjoyed hearing about your origin story yeah my story is ever so long so thank you for listening and being (laughs) bored yeah thanks for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode.